I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we finish up that part of the chapter, verses 27 through 30. And then we will follow with uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. We're talking about the doctrine of rewards. Yes, there are going to be rewards. How should we look at these? What should we do? How should we act as Christians knowing this? Jesus has just given us the juxtaposition of the little children who represent the kingdom of God and the rich young ruler and the two very different responses that are mentioned there. He is very, you know, the rich young ruler, he is a very self-sufficient person. And his approach, of course, was all wrong, coming to Jesus. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord gives us the juxtaposition of the child who is brought and not coming on in his own self-sufficient way. He comes entirely by grace. The child comes representing an absolute need. The child is totally dependent upon someone bringing him. And the rich young ruler, on the other hand, came not recognizing his need. Psychology Today had an article that talked about money in people's lives. And one of the conclusions that it said was, people who are the most money conscious are much less likely to be involved in a satisfactory love relationship and tend to be troubled by constant worry, anxiety, and loneliness. You wouldn't think that, would you? The story of the rich young ruler, which immediately precedes Peter's question, sadly but eloquently reveals the power of money to control one's life. Now, the young man's tragedy was not that he possessed wealth. The Lord isn't against that. The tragedy was that wealth possessed him, as so often it does. He would not let go of his wealth to take hold of eternal life offered by the Son of God. His trust was in his own self and wealth. And not in God. You know, when a person comes to Christ, they must recognize their need. And to do otherwise is a misrepresentation of the gospel. I don't care what anybody says. It is a misrepresentation of the gospel. It is not doing certain things to join a church or become a member of that church. It is not going through a process to become a member of a church. It is coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, totally dependent upon Him, realizing that there is a need and you cannot take care of that need. And the only person that can is Jesus Christ. Jesus tells them, after having dealt with a rich young ruler, uh, He says, Truly I truly say 
to you. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what, how did disciples feel about that? Well, when they heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? Good question. I mean, disciples got what Jesus was saying. They were wondering who could be saved if those who had been blessed and blessed the most could not. In a society that they had been brought up in, wealth was often seen to be a sign of divine approval and acceptance. And so the Lord's statement certainly startled them. But Jesus was telling them riches can and are often obstacles to entering the kingdom of God and also in faithfully serving God and his kingdom. Jesus is teaching the disciples that wealth can and will deceive you if you're not careful. If you're not careful, you'll mistake blessings for an obstacle of grace many times, as this young, rich, young ruler did. And so Jesus responds with the true definition of what grace means. He said in verse 26, And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are impossible. Coming to know God personally is entirely an act of God's mercy and grace there is nothing man can do it is God who is the agent of our salvation it is God who from the beginning to the end orchestrates our salvation salvation is not the attainment of the rich or the successful it is a gift of God's grace freely given and humbly received so he says in verse 27, these verses that we're going to be looking at, he gives us the promise of reward. He's telling Peter and the disciples, he's, he's telling them, he's saying, not only do I recognize that you've received, I mean, you understand what salvation is about, but I want to tell you something. Because of what you've given up, it is recognized also. It's not that I'm obligated to give you anything because of giving up all this, but I'm going to bless you because of it. And that's the way it is with our salvation. When we give up everything and come to him dependently uh, upon him in faith, just realizing our need, and we give up, you know, we say, Lord, our life is yours. That's basically what we're saying when we come to follow him. Lord, everything I understand, everything I have, everything I own, everything that's mine is yours. And my life I'm giving to you because I know that I cannot reach or obtain or attain eternal salvation on my own. So I come with this need and, and I just give you all. And he says, you understand. But not only that, He's also letting us know you will be blessed. You may not think you're blessed because of what you think that you may have to give up. Because a lot of people, when they give up, 
their possessions and everything, they come to the Lord, they're giving up their family and, and friends and everything else. And he talks about this in these verses, and he says, hey, you'll be blessed with many more. Whether now that you understand it or in all eternity, you will be blessed and you'll, under, you'll see this. So he tells us the promise of rewards. Peter comes forth and, and answers and said to him, Behold, Lord, we've given up everything and followed you. What then shall there be for us? God, we're trusting in you. Lord, we're trusting in you as our Savior, as our Messiah, as for our salvation. And so when they had heard Jesus say to the rich young rulers, if you wish to uh, you know, follow me, go and sell your possessions and, and uh, give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and, and come and follow me. And they, you know, they were astonished. And Peter's mind had been riveted by the implications of treasures in heaven, follow me. And so Peter and the others had done that very thing. They had given up everything. And, and so Peter uh, blurts out, what about our treasure? It's not about salvation. They understood that the Lord was their Savior the best they could at that time. What it was was, okay, Lord, what's all involved in this? God, we've given up everything. And he begins to talk to them about eternal life. And he says, we have left everything, Peter said, to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, if we're not careful, we can view that the wrong way. And this is why it's so very important to look at treasures in heaven and blessings for us in heaven the right way. We're not getting saved to, to get blessings in heaven. And he, wants, he, he lets the disciples know this. We're not doing this to work for salvation. We're not doing this because we're trying to impress God. And God, you, you're going to have to bless us. He's not obligated to do this. But out of his graciousness, he does. If we do it with the right motive. And they had done it with the right motive. They had just humbly followed the Lord. They weren't looking for anything at first. They began to talk about it later on. And so if we're not, very, if we're not careful, the, uh, what's in it for me can become a problem for us. So the disciples see how Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler. And now they wonder, well, are we just going to live here and die and follow you? And uh, what is it in all eternity? And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me, now look, underline, highlight, whatever you want to do, that's a very important phrase there, in the regeneration. We've heard of the word regeneration, especially with, uh, especially with uh, individual believers. So in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, it has something to do with his glorious throne. So it's not so much the individual regeneration of salvation that he's talking about. We'll talk about that in a few moments. You also shall sit upon the uh, twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake, shall receive 
many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. You shall inherit eternal life and there will be rewards for you. There will be blessings. What does Jesus mean though when he says, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on this glorious throne. The phrase in the regeneration there literally means in the rebirth. Okay, well, we're, we're born again, aren't we? In regeneration, rebirth, individuals, yes, he's, uh, that, that does happen when you're born again. There is a regeneration, a new birth, being made new. But this is not what he's talking about. He goes on, he talks about we'll sit with him on his glorious throne. But you will have, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging. So what in the world is he talking about? When Jesus speaks of regeneration, he's talking about an eschatological perspective. He's not talking about regeneration of the individual sinner who is made alive in Christ. He's talking about the regeneration of the cosmos in the future. The last things as we refer to it. It's referring to when Jesus comes back to earth to rule and reign. Jesus is referring to an, a, a reward that is future. Yes, there will be rewards present, but primarily in the future. He's telling Peter, the saints who have followed him in the present life, would receive their thrones, their rewards in the next life, which would enter only by that rebirth. So the Son of Man is sitting upon the glorious throne as Daniel presents it in chapter 7. Then and not before will these disciples receive this, and they will be allowed to govern what he's talking about, govern the 12 tribes of Israel in the messianic throne messianic kingdom and may i say this is not an allegory as some would like to interpret it it is not a parable in in way some would like to tell it or it's not used as symbolism the good and the bad you'll be blessed it is a promise from the lord of a future reward for faithful service it should be clear cut right there. During this time, creation itself will become new in a sense. In the sense that the curse on earth will be lifted as the Lord Jesus Christ rules ultimately. And the disciples will rule also. And even Christians will be able to rule and reign with him as heirs and joint heirs in the kingdom. During this time, men will learn war no more, the scripture tells us. Deserts will blossom as a rose. The lamb will lay with the lion. And the uh, sanitarium will be a youth. During the millennium, the Lord will rule over the whole world and Jerusalem will be the world's capital. The 12 apostles will rule over the 12 reconstituted tribes of Israel. This is a time 
that the apostles have been longing for. And the promise made in, in 1928 says, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his throne, glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It was a very specific promise made to the specific group, the twelve apostles. But there is an extension of this promise, and that is it comes to all believers. If you'll follow in verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. When the Lord Jesus returns to earth after the tribulation period, we who are his co-heirs will share in the glory that he has reigning with him on earth. Romans 8, 17, Revelation 5, 10. We will not only judge the world, we will exercise judgment over it under the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. What all this entails is not clear, but since we are in the uh, royal family of God and part of the the, the treasure in heaven uh, will be able to share in his regal authority and splendor. In Matthew 19:29, the principle of rewards is present sacrifice produces eternal privilege. The Lord is letting us know that there will be a blessing. But not only that, it'll be a blessing both now and then. If you think about it, if you leave, and, and uh, I can recall when out in Texas in school witnessing to this, uh, this Jewish person, and we walked all over Dallas that night. He left the service uh, on, when Dr. Criswell was preaching, and, and uh, they prompted me to go out and join him, and, and we talked for probably about 30 minutes walking all over Dallas. And I said, but... This is what Dr. Criswell is talking about. This is what the Bible is, is sharing with us, that, that you not really are, are giving up anything. You're gaining much more. And he said, oh, but I can't do it. I come this close, but I can't do it, Mike. He said, and I said, why? And he said, because I'm giving up all my, my family. They'll, they'll disinherit me, and, and they'll, they'll even have a funeral and, and consider me dead. And I, I'm giving up all my possessions and I just can't do that now. He could not see that he would have a new family. He could not see that he would have many more friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. Not see it to the point of being willing to give up the old to become new. And that was sad. And we left after 30 minutes. You see, present sacrifice will produce present and eternal privileges. So the Lord is setting 
letting us know that there is blessing, both now and for all eternity. Whatever losses following Christ that may entail, the Savior himself will repay richly. He lets us know this. Not that we deserve it and not that it's in the bargaining or something else. It's just that he's so gracious and generous. He's so kind that he wants to do it. He wants to let us know how much he appreciates it. So the Lord summarizes in verse 30. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And Jesus is cautioning the disciples. He's warning them not to use human yardsticks. And this is what we do so often. He says, be careful, disciples. And they did it. They would get in arguments with one another. Who's going to sit up on this throne? Or who's going to be first? And who's going to be last? And when measuring, you know, eternal rewards, we, we fall into that mistake of using human yardsticks so often. God's estimation of worthiness is quite different from ours so often. If we don't have a, an eternal perspective, and it's hard for us to see clearly, eternally a lot of times, especially when we start seeing other people blessed or we see how they're blessed or we see what they're doing and we look at us, we begin to compare. We're individuals in our own nature and we seem to like to do that. And many people who seem to be deserving of reward will receive less than is expected. Well, look at that person over there. Look at what they've done. Look at how great they are. Look at that, uh, you know, they've got a big name. Or, or look at all that they do in church. Or, or look at how active they are. Well, what are they doing all of this for? You see, even if they think, well, you know, I'm going to uh, have rewards and if they're using that as purely their motivation, then they're using it wrongly. Because Jesus didn't put this in there, didn't talk about this to say, okay, you've got to work for these rewards. He, he said, I'm showing you again my grace and how generous I am. I don't have to do this, but I'm going to do this. And so uh, many that we think, will receive great rewards, may not receive great rewards. And many whom we might judge undeserving, or who are they? I never knew of them, and they faithfully served before, behind the scene. You know, uh, in God's economy, they may be first receiving a great reward, and others may be last. From the human perspective, oftentimes, those who look like winners are often life's losers, unfortunately, because why? We look at them the way the culture looks at them. We judge according to the way the culture judges. Conversely, many who are last will be first, he says. The disciples represent the last. I mean, they were fishermen. Who, who would have picked them? They, uh, you know, they, were, they came from the, the lower class. They didn't come as a rich young ruler. They didn't come from the upper class. They didn't, you know, they had not made a lot of money. They didn't have these businesses. They, they weren't on front of a Fortune 500 or whatever magazine. You know, they, they had none of that. Uprooted from their family and, and uh, vocation, just like anybody who follows the Lord, they wandered as vagabonds following a leader who was rejected by most. 
and they had taken a huge risk. And for many, looked like they had come up empty. Even some of them. Well, what's in it for us? But appearances can be deceiving. When the disciples are seated on the 12 thrones beside the throne of Jesus, they will be first. While Jesus is shifting to a different point in the parable that follows in chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, of the workers in the vineyard, it is related to his point of his, the conversation that he was having beforehand with the disciples about the rich young ruler. Our entrance into heaven depends definitely on God's grace, not our righteous works. In the same way, our reward in heaven will be based on God's reckoning, His graciousness, not our calculations. So, Jesus' statement of who would be first and who would be last open and close this parable. If you look at the last statement in the parable, it deals with that. So, these are, are bookends. The word for tells us that the parable is an illustration and explanation of the key statement in Matthew 19.30. And in most of his parable, Jesus was teaching something about the kingdom of heaven. The way things worked under the rule of the Messiah. No different here. So he deals with the illustration or the picture dealing with rewards. And he says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a Daenerys for the day, he sent them into the vineyard and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also uh, go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went about the uh, sixth and ninth hour and did the same and about the eleventh hour. He uh, went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? In other words, it's the 11th hour, boy. It was right before closing. And he said to them, Go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius, or denarius, when those hired, uh, you know, and let me see, when those hired first came, they each received, uh, you know, more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have bore the burden in, in the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what, your, take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this man the same as you. This is my generosity. This is my judgment. This is what I see I need to do. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? It's not yours. You're not working for it, really. You're just serving me. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. 
Okay. You see, the story is not designated to primarily teach us about labor management and their relationships. Nor is it about primarily about salvation or even rewards, even though rewards are mentioned here. He's wanting us to see the attitude of our heart in serving him with which a disciple should serve him. You see, day laborers were a common fact of life in the Lord's time. Men looking for work would gather at a convenient spot in the town marketplace and those requiring help would recruit, recruit those men they needed. And a rate of pay would be paid at the end of the day. At six in the morning, the vineyard owner went out to the marketplace and he hired some workers that he saw there standing. He found some workers who agreed to a fair wage. They agreed to it. No suggestion that they you know, possessed any particular skills. He just chose them. They were available. And then, for some reason, he felt that he needed more workers later on. It may be in time of harvest, so uh, he, you know, the, he saw that it was squeezing in and he may have needed some more at that time. We don't know why. But he went back to the marketplace at 9, saw some men still are standing there, and he hired them. At noon, the process was repeated. At 3, the owner did the same. At 5, the 11th hour, he repeated the same. For one hour, they worked. And they began with the, the one who was hired last. Now, if he had paid, you know, the, the, the ones who came first their wages and let them go, then they probably would have been gone and they wouldn't have worried about it. But there was a heart problem here. And so he paid the one who worked one hour a denarius. Full day's wage. Now, you know, families to, to, uh, to operate during that day and time, they needed that much money. And so in generosity, the owner paid them. And it wasn't what they deserved, but what they needed. And apparently, in his view, people mattered more than profits because you couldn't operate on a business very long that way. But he was willing to. And then, you know, then he paid the, uh, the others and 12-hour workers came. And 12-hour and workers, they, they were astonished, you know, when they saw that. They said, hmm, let us add up. Boy, we'll get 12 denarius, denarius. So we'll get, man, we'll get all these extra days. And, and uh, so when it came and they were paid the same, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more but each of them also received a denarius. Then their attitude was revealed. When they received it, what did they do? They grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made us them equal to us, and, have, and we have bore the burden in the scorching heat of the day. That didn't seem fair. And, and today it wouldn't seem fair with us. I mean, we'd... You know, you, you're talking about in our comparison culture and our entitlement culture, you talking about some grumbling going on? 
And you be honest. You'd be grumbling too. And I would be grumbling probably. Hey man, that's not fair. Well, Jesus reveals here the way humans think about what is fair and what is just. And you know what? When we get to heaven, I wonder if we'll be surprised greatly. Some of the people in ministries that we've deemed insignificant will be celebrated. (laughs) And while many of the more prominent and well-known ministries will receive little recognition. It's not Jesus' purpose here to explain the criteria he uses for such decisions. What Jesus is doing is warning against false assumptions and expectations. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. It's from my heart. I see a need. You don't see everything that's going on. You see, that's the problem with us. Man, we become the Holy Spirit. Now, I I don't mean to be disrespectful, but we think that we know everything. We know the motives. We know what's going on. We know what makes up that person. And we become judgmental so often, don't we? We think that, you know, he... He doesn't, comparison, he doesn't meet up or they don't meet up to what somebody else meets up to. And what does he say? He says, take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? The owner tells him that he, you know, he stayed true to his word. He told them up front what what they'd be making and they agreed to it. And he was bringing fair to, you know, he was being fair to them and, and he wanted to be generous to the ones that worked at 11th hour. Now I want to tell you people, I don't know about you, but it's hard to operate that way. Why? Because it's contrary to the human nature. We've just got to change our perspective. And I want to tell you, I'm not perfect in this because I find myself just like these people so often. In that category, this warning has at least three dangers in serving the Lord one needs to look out for. Number one, the danger of a commercial spirit. Kingdom economics is different than culture economics. Pay equal to work done today. Kingdom thinking, if we work for wages, then we will become mere hirelings depended upon our bargaining skills and you know what happens when we become hirelings in the church we operate as I was sharing with someone earlier we become no longer a living organism allowing the Spirit of God to work in us and through us and we are wanting to glorify God We become an organization working to satisfy us and our expectations alone, even those expectations that are not of God. 
If we work for wages, we will only become hirelings. If I work for this in the church and I think that I've got, you know, I've got to be recognized or I've got to, uh, I, you know, I need, to be, I need to serve on this committee or that committee or that team or this team or I need to, you know, serve here or there. Or I, you know, people need to recognize what I do. Then we're doing it for the wrong reason. Just like pastors. Same thing. Reese Howell, a Welsh coal miner, turned to to be a revival. Uh, turned out to be a revival preacher, but he continued to work in the mines. He had a big heart to serve God. Every day, after a long twelve-hour shift in the mines, he would walk two miles to lead a Bible study in a neighboring village, and then return home to sleep to go to work the next day. Now, if you want to know how hard the labor was back then, just look at some of the operation that they had to work in, operational conditions. And what happened? One night he came home, and it was downpour. I mean, it was a downpour, completely soaked to the bone. His father as he arrived, said to him, I wouldn't have walked there and back tonight for 20 pounds. You know what Reese's reply was? Neither would I. He didn't get paid anything. He did it because God called him to do it. In other words, money was not his motive. Does that mean that we shouldn't pay the pastor and other staff members? No, this is not the point. It is not the point. The point is, we should have the right motive. People like that don't serve for wages. That doesn't motivate them. As I was teaching in prison, and I'm, I'm not bragging about this, but this is what a preacher told me to do early on in my ministry. He said, Mike, to be careful about going to the church for the wrong reason, don't bring up the finances. Pray about it. Seek God. And let them, if they want to bring it up, but bring it up at the end after you've prayed about it. And that's what I've tried to do. Some of the people that were in prison, one guy came up to me afterwards. He said, man, he said, you really did that? I said, for the most part, yeah, everyone. Now, there may have been one that I didn't or whatever, but I, I can't remember, but I let them bring it up. Second of all, the danger of competitive spirit. The 12-hour workers focused on what others got and could not enjoy their own wages for comparing theirs with them. And this is what happens when we start comparing ministries. Nothing and wages and, and, and whatever. If we're working wherever it is, I don't care if it's out of church, if, if we're a Christian working in a business, nothing is less appropriate in disciples than comparison and competition. When we, if that becomes our main focus, then, you know, we're not able to enjoy what God has blessed us with. I mean, preachers would love to have the crowds that Billy Graham had when he preached to all the, in these, all, you know, all these crusades. 
We would love to be able to write and preach like preachers like Swindoll or MacArthur or Adrian Rogers and, and other famous preachers. We would love to be able to pray like George Mueller, who was a, a prayer warrior. We, you know, we, we'd love to be able to organize like Bill Bright. But when we set our eyes on what the master is giving to other servants, guess what evaporates? Joy. When we focus on his fairness and abounding generosity, then what happens to us? Joy will fill our hearts. And I want to tell you up front, it is not always easy to do. It is a growing process. It is a continual wrestling with this. And then the last point, the danger of complaining. A complaining spirit. They began to grumble against the landowner. When we grumble about our work and our blessings and our situations, our ministry, we are attacking the goodness and generosity of God. And what does it reveal? It reveals what our, we see with our eyes, which comes from our heart. We don't want to admit it, but it does. It was a continuous murmuring and complaining, you know, that, that kept Israel from going into the promised land, didn't it? They didn't get to receive that blessing. They wandered around in the wilderness. And God's anger came upon them. Murmuring and is an infectious social disease that robs us and all of those around us of joy. Don't you just hate to be around people that just constantly murmur and complain and gripe and grumble? It affects you. It affects the person. When we lament the cost of our discipleship, it is then that we've missed the the wonder of the grace and generosity of God. And oh, I hate to say it, but how many times have I missed it? Jesus made the point that heaven's rewards are based upon God's standards and our faithfulness to our calling in both attitude and action. In 1 Corinthians 4, there's no negotiating or technicalities to consider. The problem with the laborers who complained and murmured was their eye was envious. And that's the way it is with me and other people. I've told you about my friend in Dallas when I was in school. I couldn't enjoy school. When, and it affected not only our relationship to him, but, and I've had him here to preach, but, but other preachers, that one that roomed with him, one that uh, we all ran together and, and uh, around together. And, and you know, uh, when he was being blessed and God was blessing him in a great way, we were envious. I mean, here's a young single guy and getting, getting all this extra money and all this extra attention. And here I am married, struggling in school and working and don't have anything. God... Is this fair? We, we did. We thought that. Told him later what was going on in my heart and my mind. And I said, I forgive you. No, 
I said, I hope you can forgive me. F.B. Meyer, and let me end with this, once found himself in a ministry where the, where the work of two well-known preachers overshadowed his own efforts. It's not easy to, to deal with the relative unimportance of what he was doing, so, but his solution re- revealed true discipleship. Quote, If I find in my own ministry that supposing I pray for my own little flock, God bless me. God fill my pews. God send me a revival. If that's in my heart with these other two giant ministries going on about me, then I miss a blessing. But, If I pray for my brother on the right-hand side in his church, God bless him. Or my other brother on the left-hand side, God bless him. I am sure to get a blessing without proving or without paying for it. For the overflow of their cups fills my little bucket. Knowing that God is generous and gracious and working. Contrast is not between disciples and non-disciples. It's rather a, a reminder that external circumstances are not the key to eternal rewards. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I just want to thank you. And I pray that... Um, that you'll help me to keep my eyes on on you and the correct perspective because I can, and I I have, and I've done it, and I still am tempted with it, but I see other people around me that's being blessed, and and Lord, if if I start thinking wrongly, start viewing that wrongly, then God, I will miss out on the blessing that you have for me. And I'll miss the joy of what you've given me. And I pray that that won't happen. Help me to keep focused in on you. And I pray this for others also. And I pray it for our church here. May we not compare ourselves to other people, but may we see what you would have us to do and be faithful at doing that. And God, see the blessings that, recognize the blessings that you have for us and experience the joy that you have for us. Thank you, God, for being so gracious and generous. Even when I don't see it, thank you for understanding. Help me to keep focused on you and your generosity, your mercy, your love, your grace. And God, help us all here do that. And may we experience the joy that you have for us and the blessings to come as we remain faithful. Not that we deserve it, but because of you being gracious and generous. Father, if there's anybody in here that needs to make a decision, whether coming to Christ and receiving the wonderful gift of salvation, I pray that they'll they'll just um, be with us today, and, and Lord, that they will contact, uh, come, and just uh, let someone know, whether it's... Uh, you know, while we're standing outside or or whatever, 
while I'm down front. Uh, Lord, may you um, be with each and every member. And, and Lord, if, if the joy is not there in serving you, I pray that, that you'll help them also be focused on the right person the generosity that you have and I pray that they'll make the decision that they need to make whether it's coming forward or whether it's praying where they are in their pew but help us to glorify you during this time in Jesus name Amen